Thank you, choir, and Shan the man. Thank you for that. So uh, we're going to focus today on can Jesus really love me? That's the question. And I'm going to preach for a little bit. I promise it will be a little bit. But then we're going to have some Q&A around uh the focus of the sermon. So Pastor Jared and I will come up here and try to answer two, three, four questions uh, after the sermon that you have. So we want this to be kind of a talk back, a, a, a dialogue, not just a monologue. So uh, during the sermon, if a, if a question is triggered by something I said about the love of Christ, go ahead and text your question there. You'll have a chance to write it out before the offering as well if you don't have a cell phone or don't want to use your cell phone on a Sunday or whatever. Uh, go ahead and text your question or write your question down. And then we'll try to, again, grapple with a few of those questions. And we promise you'll be out of here in time to have lunch before the Colts game. Are the Colts even playing at 1 o'clock? Does anybody care, even if they are? I mean, um, so uh, now the questions have to be about the sermon, okay? So, like, don't ask about my shoes or my terrible haircut and anything like that. So it's got to be focused on the sermon. So when we see things with our eyes... uh, we have an immediate sort of knee-jerk response to what we look at, right? So, and you can't help that response. You see something, you respond internally or sometimes externally to what you see, and you can't help that. So when I see the Dallas Cowboys, my knee-jerk response is disgust. I can't help that. It's just in me. When I see politicians, uh, my knee-jerk response is cynicism. When I see salad dressing, I immediately feel nauseous. And if I'm around it and smell it, it could get ugly. When I see Pastor Jared's bow tie, when I look at it, my immediate response is a smile. Now, your response might be annoyance, but my response is a smile. Now, when you look at Jesus, when you see pictures of Jesus, what is your immediate response? Is it doubt? Is it belief? Is it interest? Is it skepticism? But really the question I want to focus on today is not uh, how we respond when we look at Jesus. I want to focus on the question, how does Jesus feel when he looks at you? How does Jesus feel when he looks at you? Maybe you imagine that when Jesus looks at you, his immediate knee-jerk response is disgust or disapproval. That your, your sin, your messiness sickens him, like the church lady. Maybe you imagine that uh, when Jesus looks at you, he's kind of like the... Uh, teacher who is constantly disappointed with you. Uh, You can never measure up to her standards. Uh, A B plus is never good enough. Jesus is like the disappointed teacher. Or maybe you imagine that Jesus is like uh, the disinterested CEO. He's got way too much going on. He's way too busy to worry about little old you. You're just a small pawn on the chessboard of the universe. How does Jesus view you? 
when he looks at you, what is his knee-jerk response? Now, sometimes the way that we view ourselves and the way that we think others view us determines how we believe that God views us. And that's a problem. If you believe that Jesus, when he looks at you, feels disgust or disapproval or disappointment or disinterest, I just want to tell you right from the start, you are dead wrong. Dead wrong. Check this out. Mark chapter 10. It's a story from the Gospels in the Bible. Uh, Verses 17 to 22. Let me just read it. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, Jesus said, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. If ever there was someone who was difficult to love, it was the rich man in this story with Jesus. Here's why. I mean, think about it. He's the kind of guy who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He turns 16, and his father gives him a brand new convertible camel. <laughs> he's got it all. He's got, uh, he's got Brad Pitt's looks. He's got Albert Einstein's brains. He's got Jeff Bezos' wealth. He's got Ned Flanders' goodness. He's got it all. His goods and his goodness, he thinks, are enough to get him God. He's religious. He reads the Torah. He goes to the Jewish synagogue. He's a really, really, really good guy. It's just that he's depending more on his goods and his goodness than he is on God. And when I encounter someone like that who's got it all, My response is not love. I might respect him. I might revere him. I probably will envy him and maybe covet what he has. But my immediate response when I look at someone like that who's putting more confidence in their goods and their goodness than God, I just want to slap them. And as if that wasn't enough to get us to not like the guy, there's more. Uh, He thinks of himself more highly than he ought to. That's pretty obvious. You ever been around someone who's lacking self-awareness and they think they're better at something than they really are? You've been around someone like that? And don't you want to kind of slap them? Come on. I remember uh, being guilty of this very thing. I was uh, in seminary at the time playing racquetball with my friends who were all just starting out playing racquetball and I would play sometimes professors who were twice my age and I was beating everybody in racquetball. Uh, no one could beat me. 
And I thought I was the best racquetball player in the universe. I thought my game was at an A level because I beat everybody I played. So then I met this guy, Justin. Justin mentioned that he played racquetball. I told him I played. He said, let's play sometime. And I kind of felt bad for Justin because I looked at him and he didn't seem all that athletic. And so I just sort of dropped it to him that I'm really good in racquetball and I haven't found anybody on campus who could beat me. Uh, but Justin still showed up. I thought, do I play him left-handed? You know, how do I go about this? Anyway, we played six games up to 15. And the scores were 15 to 2, 15 to 3, 15 to 1. Justin beat me every single time. And then he humbly mentioned that uh, he's ranked third in the state of Kentucky. (laughs) I thought I was A-level. Justin was A-level. I was C-level. I thought of myself more highly than I ought, and I think the same is true with this rich guy. He thinks that he's better than he really is. And how do I know that? Well, if you look at the commands that Jesus mentions, uh, you know, do not steal, do not murder. And then he pulls a fast one, Jesus does. And he mentions do not defraud instead of do not covet. Now, do not covet was a command, one of the 10. Do not defraud was not. So Jesus pulls a fast one because the guy's problem wasn't coveting. He had it all. He didn't want what other people had. He had it all. His problem, it seems, was defrauding people, keeping people from what they deserve. And then if you couple that with Jesus' command later on in the story to the guy to go and dump all of your wealth, sell all that you have, and then give it to the poor, it seems pretty obvious that this guy was getting rich on the backs of the poor. He was defrauding people. He had the law, but he didn't have love. He had religion, but he didn't have relationship with God. And it's so much easier for me, and I think probably for you, to look at, look at someone and love someone who is poor and marginalized and thinks more lowly of himself than he ought to than to love someone like this guy who was a self-righteous snob who thought of himself more highly than he should. It's hard to love someone like that who was putting more confidence in his goods and goodness than God. And this is what makes verse 21 so stinking remarkable to me. Jesus looked at him and his knee-jerk response was love. He looked at him and he loved him, this self-righteous snob. His immediate response was not disgust, not disappointment, not disapproval, not disinterest, love. And that's not just any kind of love. He could have, Mark could have used several different words for love, Greek words, four or so Greek words for love, but he uses the Greek word agape, which is the highest form of love. It's an unconditional love based not on what's in the person being loved, but based on what is in the person who's doing the loving. It's, it's not a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of love. It's actually a, even if you don't scratch my back, I will scratch yours kind of love. And here's what I want us to get 
if you get nothing else out of what I'm saying. If Jesus can look at and love someone like this, if he can look at and love a self-righteous snob who's putting more confidence in his goods and goodness than God, then guess what? Jesus can look at you and love you too. And that may be hard for you to swallow because you can't imagine anyone seeing inside of you all there is to know about you, all of your idiosyncrasies, your failures, your foibles, your flaws, to know you completely and still love you entirely. It seems impossible. Maybe you've had friends abandon you. Maybe you've had employers fire you. Maybe you've had teachers fail you. Maybe you've had lovers dump you. Maybe you look at yourself in the mirror and your knee-jerk response when looking at yourself is hate and disgust. And maybe people around you who look at you are disgusted by you or sickened by you or can't stand you. But I want you to know that when Jesus looks at you, he loves you. You are the apple of his eye. You are the treasure he would die to protect. Let me illustrate it this way. My oldest son, Zach, who's now 16, I won't say where he's sitting because I don't want to embarrass him, but he's been writing rap songs and recording rap songs for about two years now. And uh, he loves these songs that he writes and records. I mean, he's just so into his songs. They're a part of him. They, They come out of him got his DNA all over them. And he'll play those songs repeatedly for me and his mother and ask us what we think. And the first time we're like, it's awesome. And then the, like the 15th time we're like, dude, please shut it off. Because even though I used to love rap as a kid, now rap is like country music to me. I don't want to hear either, to be honest with you. And so Zach will just keep playing the song, playing the song. And, and we don't, we don't have, he'll notice that me and his mother don't have the same kind of appreciation for his songs as he does. <laughs> and then his younger sister and brother, man, they're just hypercritical of his songs. (laughs) Zach, those lyrics don't even make sense. And and your your words are off with the beat of the music. It's terrible, Zach. And he'll just say, just be quiet. You don't know anything. The point is, no matter what anybody says about these songs that have come out of him, that are a part of him, he doesn't care. He loves those songs. They've got his DNA all over him. You are God's rap song. And no matter what the rap critics might say about your lack of lyrical worth, you are funky, fresh, and super dope (laughs) in the eyes of God. You are. That is who you are. doesn't matter what other people think of you. You have God's DNA all over you. you. You are a part of him. You've come out of him. How could he not love you? Now, before we get all warm and fuzzy about the love of Jesus, know this. Because Jesus loves you, he exposes your lack. Notice verse 21. Look more closely at verse 21. Jesus looked at the man and loved him and then said immediately, one thing you lack. Jesus loves us so much he cannot tolerate our lack. We talk a lot about tolerance and intolerance. Jesus, if there is a lack in your life, Jesus will not be tolerant about it. He'll hate it. 
and he'll try everything he can to drive it out so that you have everything and lack nothing. One thing you lack, he said to the man. (laughs) I doubt this guy ever heard that phrase. One thing you lack. He's got everything. What could he possibly lack? Here's what he lacks. He lacks the ability to see his lack. His goods and his goodness are blinding to him to his need for God. And he walks away from an invitation to friendship with Jesus, sad, unwilling to part with his goods and goodness to get God. So many of us are like this rich guy, I think. Not because we have a lot of money, but because we're Americans, you know, most of us were, were self-starters, you know. We ask with this guy, what must I do? What must I do? Tell me, I'll do it. I'll use my savvy, my skill, my success, my money. What must I do to get eternal life? How can I buy it with my goods? How can I earn it with my goodness? And the point is, we can't. <laughs> there is nothing you and I can do to get his love, to earn heaven, to get eternal life. What must I do is all about religion and law. But the real question is, what did Christ do already for me that I cannot do for myself? That's the question. I want you to think about um, a couple of the best people we can name who've lived in our world. Uh, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King Jr., Billy Graham. Anybody in here better than that triad? Raise your hand. Anybody do more good than these three? Raise your hand. We'll have the ushers escort you out the building (laughs) because you don't need church. You don't need God. Even these three, as much good as they have done, confess that they need God through Christ to do for them what they could never do for themselves. They needed a Savior too. And that's really the good news. We don't have to do anything. Jesus did it all. It's the gospel. I know it sounds too good to be true, and it is. But if you don't see your lack, you won't want his love. That's the reality. If you don't see your lack, you won't want his love. And my hunch is that many of us in this room do see our lack. We have in our hearts this God-shaped hole, this vacuum. I love this uh, quote from Blaise Pascal, who lived in the 17th century, brilliant mathematician, scientist, philosopher, and Christian. And he wrote this. He wrote, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person, which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God our Creator made known through his son, Jesus Christ. We all have this God-shaped vacuum, this hole in our hearts. And we try to fill it with all sorts of things, don't we? What do we try to fill the hole with? Shout them out. Come on, let's just talk back time. Money. Entertainment, material wealth. Other relationships. You guys just preached my sermon. Thank you. Okay, be quiet now because I want to say what I want to say. 
we try to fill the void in our hearts that God shaped whole with pleasure, sex, drugs, rock and roll, until we quickly discover those things are way too small to fill that hole, way too small. So then we can become more sophisticated and we try to fill that God-shaped hole with success, high school graduation, college graduation, get the good job, get the promotion, climb the corporate ladder, make more money, buy the new car, get the bigger house. And you know that the suicide rate is highest among the most successful people because they've worked all their life to get to a place where they could become the most successful in their field because they think that will fill the hole in their heart. And when they get there, they realize they're still empty. And then we try to fill the hole with relationships. Mr. Right or Miss Right. Cute little kids who eventually become teenagers. And for a while, it may look like the person we have in our life is filling that void, but in time, you will become very disappointed if you expect a human being to satisfy you the way no one else can. So what will you do? Then you go to religion. Do good. Be good. Go to church. Read your Bible. Pray. Be kind. What must I do? That was the rich man's problem. Religion. And some of you have come to faith uh, in Christ and you experienced in the early days of your faith this wonderful, beautiful, love-based relationship. But in time, the longer you're in church, if you're not careful, that loving relationship can become a legalistic religion and you miss out on the void being filled and you think religion will do it and it won't. And even though you were once a person marked by peace and joy and love, now you're a person marked by anxiety and anger and apathy. You're difficult to be around and you're petty because you've slipped out of relationship and into religion. And that's the hardest lack to see. If you don't see your lack, you won't need his love. Going through life without the love of Christ, settling for anything less than his love, even if you've had the most pleasurable sex, even if you've had the best high and the best buzz and the biggest house on the block and you're the religious envy of everybody, if you do not have the love of Christ filling that void in your heart, you will be empty and you don't have to settle. Don't settle for a White Castle burger when you can have filet mignon. Don't settle for a fish stick when you can have a two-pound swordfish steak. Don't settle for a Chevy Aveo which is what my wife drives, when you can have a convertible Corvette. (laughs) Refusing the love of Christ that is offered to us to fill that void in our hearts is like walking around starving to death with with an unlimited gift card to a Chinese buffet or sirloin stockade in our pocket. You don't have to go on empty. The void can be filled but Jesus is the only one to fill it. You can experience a life without lack if you can admit your lack and receive Christ's love. So the question, can Jesus really love you? Yes. 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 I know it's hard to believe 
For me, the hardest belief to believe about God is not his existence. It's not in his power. In fact, I think any open-minded thinking person who looks at the facts can just as safely conclude there is a God as he conclude that there isn't. I think it takes just as much faith to be an atheist as there takes to be a theist. But the hardest belief for me to believe is that God can look at me and in me and through me and love me still. It's hard. Because I know me real well. If you were to look at me and see my life 24-7, if you were to see every thought and word and action that has come out of me throughout my life, if you were to see me at home yelling harshly at my kids, if you were to see me at home engrossed in the football game while my wife is pouring out her heart to me, if you were to see me, uh, my anger at a brother or sister in Christ, if you were to see my jealousy toward a coworker, if you were to see the insufficiency of my soul, chances are you would have a hard time loving me if you knew me real well. But think of it this way. Think about the one person in your life, maybe there's just one, maybe there's more, somebody in your life who no matter what they do, you will always love them. You have someone like that? A spouse, a kid, a bestie, you know, like a best friend. No matter what they do, you won't stop loving them. For me, it's my kids. My kids could spit in my face every day and say, Dad, I hate you and I wish you weren't my dad. And I would still look at them and love them. They could stab me with a fork multiple times a week and shoot me. Don't get any ideas. (laughs) And I would still look at them and love them. They could be the worst bully in their school. They could blow up a building. They could shoot up a church and it would grieve me. But I would still look at them and love them. Now, if I can love someone unconditionally like that, multiply that by a gazillion. That's how God feels about you. He looks at you and he loves you. Who in this room would refuse that kind of love? Admit your lack and receive his love. That's all there is to it. And you will have that void in your heart filled forever. Don't go away sad like the rich guy, holding on to his goods and goodness and giving up on God. Jesus was actually calling him to friendship, to be one of the posse, one of the disciples. And this man held on to his wealth and missed out on God. is one of those few stories in the gospel where somebody comes to Jesus happy and leaves sad. And I don't want you to leave this place sadder than when you came in. Admit your lack, receive his love. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And uh, I'm going to invite you to say this prayer with me if you're ready to admit your lack and receive his love. And this could be a divine moment for some of you that determines the trajectory of the rest of your life and eternity. So don't take this lightly. I'm going to lead us in a prayer and invite you to pray with me. If you're ready to admit your lack and receive Christ's love, he's ready to fill that void in your heart right now. Let's pray.
Jesus Christ, thank you for your amazing, unconditional, agape sort of love. Thank you for looking at us and loving us despite us. God, forgive us for trying to fill that void in our heart with pleasure, relationships, success, even religion. Today we admit our lack. It's not about what must I do, but what you did for me, for us. So God, now I ask you to forgive my sins, come into my heart, make me whole, put me back together again, Fill me with your love so that I don't have to chase after anything else in this world, but can rest in peace and joy and contentment in your love. In the name of Christ, amen. If you said that prayer, today is the beginning of eternity for you. And we want to know about it. Your pastors want to know about it. Mark it on the communication card. Say, I... I received Christ's love today. Uh, maybe you'll want to get baptized on October 27th right here in the church, right back there. That's our baptistry. Um, but go ahead and mark that on the communication card. Also at this point, again, I wanna, we're going to have a little talk back time. Uh, you can write your questions out on a piece of paper, drop it in the offering plate because we're going to have the offering here in just a minute. And, uh, or you can text the question. Again, we're only going to be able to get to three or four questions. We're going to try to do some Facebook Q&A around your questions later in the week. Uh, but Pastor Jared and I will probably fumble a little bit, but we'll try to answer some of the questions so it feels more like a dialogue to you. Um, so let's stand together. Let's stretch our legs. Ushers are coming forward for the offering. Write your questions. Text your questions as we stand together and sing. So we want to <clears throat> acknowledge that uh, even though this is a dialogue, and we hope it feels like a dialogue, these are your questions you get to talk back with the sermon. Um, because we're trying to be conscious of time and going to probably answer a few questions, uh, we won't give any question really uh, probably the thoroughness it deserves, so we'll do our best. And we realize this, this is a tough environment, tough kind of venue to answer some really important questions you may have. So we're going to do our best to offer quick responses to probably very complex questions that you'll ask. So we apologize in advance for any lack of thoroughness in response to your really good questions. Okay. All right. You ready? I hope. Okay. Question number one. I don't really understand how he allows so much ugly pain and suffering when he's supposed to be such a God of love. Great question. Great question and one that uh, we've been asking for thousands of years. How can, a, how can pain and ugliness exist in a world that a good, loving God created? And uh, I think it really goes back to love. Uh, if I were God, I would have created a, you to be a bunch of robots who, who are programmed to do always the right and good thing according to my will. But if I, and then there would be no pain, there'd be no problem, there'd be no sin. But if I created that kind of world where you were programmed to automatically do what I want you to do because I'm God, uh, then there would be no chance at love. Because the only way you can risk the possibility of love is to risk the possibility of pain and sin and ugliness. So God, in his wisdom, took this incredible risk I would not have taken if I were God to create us with free will where we can choose to love him or not love him. Uh, and in hoping for our love, he risked 
our idiocy and sin um, and pain um, because he wanted our love. And I would also add to that, if you think about, uh, you may have seen this illustration, but if you think about a rope, a long rope that goes for like 10 miles, imagine that kind of a rope. (laughs) That represents eternity, which is forever, okay? So imagine that maybe an inch of the rope that goes for 10 miles or forever, that only an inch represents your 60, 70, 80 years, 90 years for some of you in this world. If you had to choose pain here or pain there, what would you pick? I mean, yeah, the the pain that we experience in this world, and I've experienced my fair share and so have you, but it really is compared to the light of eternity, the pain that we experience in this inch of rope is not trivial, but minimal compared to uh, the pain-free, death-free, bliss-filled eternity that God has in store for us through Jesus Christ. Yeah, I would concur with that. I was just going to highlight the opportunity for love to be genuine. There has to be a choice. Yeah. Um, Second question. Does that mean we can't ever be tolerated by God because he can't tolerate our lack? <laughs> yeah, I wish I could have that person right up here so I can, I can unpack that a bit. Um, but love is not toleration. Uh, toleration is, is not even close. I wouldn't even say it's a lower form of love. It's, kind of a, it's not even in the love category for me. It's like if you have kids who are doing something stupid or making a mistake or heading toward a pit, and they might fall in, they might not. Are you going to just tolerate that and pat them on the back and say, okay, go for it? No, you're going to get in their face because you love them. And if you see a lack in a human being and you truly love them, um, you, will, you will expose the lack, point out the lack, not to shame them, but because you love them. Uh, the people I value most in my life who I feel like love me the most are people who look me in the eye and love me and then say what Jesus said. Lenny, one thing you lack. They're, they're, they love me and my growth and potential more than they love my relationship with them. So they're willing to risk my disgust with them or my anger toward them because they want to expose the lack. That's love. That's true love. Right. Jump in. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. I have nothing to add. You're always right to agree with me. But, you know, I mean, you're the boss. <laughs> so let's go on to question three. I have slipped out of relationship and into religion. Does God still love me? And how do I get back into relationship? That's a great question. Let me just first acknowledge why it's such a good question. If you look at the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, um, there's there's two brothers, two sons of the father. Uh, One has been really uh, sinful and done a lot of shameful things. One has been the good son the religious good son, dutiful. He's dutiful, but he's distant. And when I first came to Christ, I was the prodigal son who, who squandered my father's wealth on wild living. And I came back to God and I was repentant and I experienced that newfound faith and that vitality, forgiveness of my sins. And I was just on fire for God. And then I noticed in my own life, 10, 20 years into my walk with Christ, it was so easy for me to move from being the forgiven prodigal to the dutiful but distant religious son. Serving God, uh, but not really loving God. 
trying to earn God's favor or do the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. And uh, how do you get back to that, to that vital, intimate relationship with God? I think, I think it's being willing to put yourself in new environments, to take a risk in ministry or confession to a human being, which is the hardest thing to do, to look at someone and say, I am not as holy as I thought I was. I need God. I'm 30 years into my Christian walk or 40 years in, and I don't feel like reading my Bible or praying. I feel spiritually stale. Would you help me? That's a humble move. But if you find yourself stuck in religion and out of relationship with God, you need people to help you. Uh, Community. Take off the mask. Take off your happy face and just air that to someone who will love you and walk with you through it. The other thing is, take a risk. Do something you've never done before. Adopt a kid from Ethiopia. Uh, Go serve at-risk kids at Francis Slocum. As we get older, at least for me in midlife now, I want to hug the trunk of the tree and play it safe because I have too much to lose now. And I've learned that I experience the presence and power of God most profoundly, not when I'm hugging the trunk of the tree, playing it safe, but when I'm out on a limb doing something risky for God. That's when God shows up most profoundly and revitalizes my faith. <laughs> oh, you don't want me on a mission trip, man. I'm... Okay, okay, okay. You don't want me. You, if you want to go on a mission trip, you can go, <laughs> go with Bob. Yeah, I think the temptation when we're stuck in religion is to think, well, I just need to go do more to fix it. When in reality, maybe we just need to do something different, right? Because there's more ways to meet with God than just by reading Scripture, though that's a great way. Maybe you need to pray differently. Maybe you need to read Scripture differently. Maybe you need to go serve God differently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just one more thing. This is a great question. I'm sure a lot of people wrestle with that. If you've not gone through a uh, period of dryness spiritually, you will. Uh, if you've been a Christian for a while. And uh, one of the things that has sort of woken up my faith is I have this Kids Hope mentee named Isaiah. I've been with him since kindergarten, and he's now in sixth grade. So we've been together all these years, and he's, he's got a really rough life, never knew his dad. Um, but he's such a sweet kid, and I see Jesus in his eyes, and it awakens my faith. Um, anyway. So. Next question. How can you identify your lack? Uh, the symptoms for me, the symptoms of lack in my life are shortness with people, disappointment with people, because they're never measuring up to my standard. So I must be expecting people to do what only God can do. Um, I'm exhausted and on the verge of burnout. Uh, I'm doing a lot for the Lord, but I'm not doing it with the Lord, right? I'm focused more on the work of the Lord than the Lord of the work, and I'm missing out on something. So my lack tends to be my irritation with people. That's one of the ways God gets my attention. How about you? Yeah, I would say it's more of like a depressed mood, just feeling deflated, um, or, yeah, just exhausted, feeling spiritually. Yeah. Yeah, if I'm buying a large pizza and, and renting three Arnold Schwarzenegger shoot 'em up movies, I'm probably depressed. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you want to tackle one more? Yes, do one more. Okay, so is it possible for God to love someone else more than me? So not me specifically, but... I'm glad you clarified that because I was going to... The easy answer was yes. Yeah, obviously. So... Uh, 
Does God have favorites? My goodness. <laughs> this is going to seem trite and simplistic, and I'm sorry, but my grandmother would always whisper to all of us grandkids when we were alone with her, you're my favorite. And what we didn't know is that she was telling the other grandkids, you're my favorite. <laughs> I, you know, when I think about what God has done for me, I, I, I feel favored by God, I do. My, my life, if you know my story and I've shared pieces of it, I feel like my, my life has been a wave carried by an ocean of God's grace to places I could never go on my own. And you probably feel that way too. That's just it. We all, if we're in Christ, we, we should all feel this sense of God's incredible favor upon us. We're going to have moments where we feel like God doesn't like us. I have those moments too. But, but when I look back on the pages of my life's journey, I am so overwhelmed uh, with the favor of God that shows up in the most profound places of my life. And uh, I think a lot of us feel that way. Um, does God have favorites? Yeah, you can look in the Bible. If you want to make this a biblical case, you can say uh, God shows favoritism to certain people, but uh, you know, Cain and Abel and, and, and obviously the Jewish people were his chosen people among all the peoples of the earth. So he kind of picked them to be his favorite. But remember in uh, Genesis 12 that he picked the Jews not just to bless them, but to make them a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So when God favors you, watch out. Because he's going he's to squeeze you to make you a blessing to other people if you feel favored. The other thing I want to go to is in uh, uh, Acts chapter 10, where, Jesus, where Peter, a Jew, is in the home of a non-Jew, a Gentile. And, and Peter was a racist Jew. He felt like the Jews were the favored people of God and anybody who wasn't Jewish was less than, inferior. And now he's in the home of Cornelius, a Gentile. And he says these words, and it was hard for him to say. He was converted in his racism. He said, uh, I now perceive how true it is that God does not show partiality, but accepts all people from all nations who fear him and do what's right. And he just left it there. And thanks to that, Gentiles like us, I assume, have come into the faith. Right, my head goes to Matthew chapter 20 with the parable about the workers in the vineyard. And the boss goes out and gets all these different workers throughout different times of the day and even gets some right at the end of the day, but they all end up with the same mm pay. And some are angry, but God's like, who are you to say what I should do, right? So I think of that with his love. It's great for sure. But just with that, we want to conclude and